Well, there was a little boy who was walking down the street when he saw this beautiful red bike in a store window. And he really wanted the bike, but he knew that his family didn't have the money for it. So as he was walking home, he was trying to think of a way he could get the bike. And then he remembered a sermon he had heard on prayer and how God, being our Heavenly Father, loves us and wants to give good gifts to his children. So the little boy said, let me see, what did the pastor say about praying to God and asking him for things? He said, oh yeah, he said we're to pray specifically because God wants to know what it is that we want. And he said we're to pray expectantly, believing in faith that God is going to give us those things. So he runs into his room, he drops down on his knees, he uh, says, dear God, would you give me that red bike that I saw in the window? I know you love me uh, and want to give me good things, so I believe you're going to give it to me. Amen. And then he runs out on the front porch because expecting the bike is going to be there, but it's not. And he says, what happened? I prayed specifically and expectantly. Oh, yeah, he said we're to pray persistently. We need to persevere in prayer. So the next day, the little boy uh, comes home. He gets down on his knees. He prays the same prayer, runs out on the porch. It's not there. Day after day, he does this. Well, finally, one day, as he walks into the door of his house, he, he, instead of going to his bedroom, he goes down the hall to his parents' room, and there they have a statue of the Virgin Mary on the dresser. And so he grabs his statue, he runs to his room, he gets some newspaper, he rolls the statue up in it, he ties it with some string, and then he shoves it under his bed. He gets on his knees and he says, okay, God, if you ever want to see your mom again, <laughs> then I want that bike here today. Now, some of you are laughing about that, and it's, it's probably because that's how we pray, isn't it? Right? We, we follow those steps to prayer that we've heard. We pray specifically. We pray expectantly. We persevere. We've heard we're to pray in Jesus' name, so we tack that on, and we say, God, I'm following the formula. I'm doing everything you said, but you're not coming through. And, and, and maybe you've never held Mary hostage before, but... How many of us have tried to hold God hostage? We say, you know, God, I'm going to withhold my obedience. I'm going to withhold my love from you. We, we make some bargain with God. Well, God, if you'll do this, then I'll start doing this. Have you ever wondered why prayers sometimes aren't answered? I mean, one reason prayers are not answered is sometimes we just don't even pray them. James 4.2 tells us you do not have because you do not ask. Now it goes on and tell us that in cases where we do ask, James 4.3 says you ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motive so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now that takes care of a lot of our prayers right there, doesn't it? But what about when we pray those prayers that are not selfish and we are asking and we, we are entreating God for something uh, that we really hope he'll answer like when a friend has cancer or a loved one is dying, and we're asking God, would you bring healing to this person? Uh, why doesn't God answer those, those prayers when it's not a question of motive? Well, sometimes it may be that it doesn't fit into God's plan. We're going to see today in Luke chapter 11 that Jesus, as he tells us how to pray, he says, pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's a, it's a prayer where we're saying, uh, God, it's not what I want, but what you want to happen. You know, many of us spend more time praying to keep dying saints out of heaven than we do praying to keep lost sinners out of hell. 
And as you think about how we pray, as we turn in our Bible today to Luke chapter 11, we're not going to be able to answer every question about prayer, but we are going to see today some guidelines that God has given to us uh, for those times that we do come to him in prayer. So I invite you to look with me at Luke chapter 11, or I want us to begin by reading verses 1 through 4. Luke 11, 1 through 4 says, And it came about that while he was praying, this is Jesus, in a certain place, after he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Now, this is commonly called the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father. Now, it may not be the way that you're used to praying it. And uh, there's a more familiar version of the Lord's Prayer found in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew 6, 9 through 13, it says, Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, it's not that the two writers here were confusing what Jesus said. Jesus taught on prayer more than once. And as you look at Matthew's gospel, you see the context there is it's part of a larger sermon. And as we look at Luke's account, you see that uh, the disciples see Jesus praying. That was the catalyst where they come to him and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. Uh, If you're keeping count as we've been going through this series, this is now the fifth time that Luke has focused on Jesus praying. The disciples know he is God. And they say if God himself is constantly communing with God in heaven, God the Father, Jesus the Son talking to the Father, this must be important. And so they say, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? And as Jesus teaches them to pray, notice it's not to be a mindless recitation of words that we pair it back to God. If you look at Matthew's account, it says in Matthew 6, 7, Jesus said, and when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they will be heard for their many words. I was raised Roman Catholic. I, I used to pray the rosary, and you, you, you know some of you who have been there. You just kind of are, are thumbing through the beads and praying the prayers, and the Our Fathers come along, and you're not even thinking about what you're saying. And that's not what this is. It's not some magic prayer. What Jesus is doing is he gives us a pattern here. And he says we are to pray with these kind of blocks in the prayer. And he says begin with our relationship with God. He says, as you come to God, call him father. The the Greek word is pater. You've heard of paternal versus maternal. Well, pater is father. And and if you look at it in the Aramaic, the word is Abba. I was in a Middle Eastern country once, and as I was weaving down a street in the crowds, there was this this little boy who looked like he was lost. And he kind of had that panic look on his face, and and he was looking up at, at the faces in the crowd, and he was crying out, Abba! Abba, Daddy. And suddenly this father cuts through the crowd. He hears the cries of his little boy, and he runs up and he scoops his son up in his arms. And this is the picture here. God says, when you come and talk to me, talk to me as Daddy. 
The Orthodox Jews today will not even say the name of God. They won't say Yahweh or even Jehovah. And if they write the name God, often they'll put a capital G, a slash for O, and then a D because they don't even want to write the name God. They say he's too holy to even uh, speak his name. And what Jesus says is we get to come and we have the privilege of saying, Daddy. He's not this distant, disconnected God, but he loves us as a heavenly father. Jesus says when you pray, prayer is simply a conversation where you're talking to your heavenly father. He says, think of a a daddy where you would crawl up as a little child into his lap and say, daddy, let me tell you about my day. Let me tell you about my dreams. Let me talk to you about my hopes and what I'm scared of. And that's our father. He wants us to come to him, not just with our laundry list of needs, but also just to say, I want to have fellowship with you, father. I want to talk to you, daddy. I just want to linger here. Now, as we're talking about being able to approach God as our daddy, don't separate that from what Jesus also says when he tells us to pray, hallowed be your name. That literally means holy. Holy is your name. You see, while we can approach God as our father, we also have to remember that he's not our bud. Sometimes as believers, we treat God too carelessly. We've been told he's a personal God who loves us, so we think of him as our running buddy. You know, if if one of my kids were to come up to me and they were to say, hey, Roger, what do you think I would do? Some of you as parents know exactly what you would do. You'd give them that parental look, right, that strikes fear in in a wayward child. I'd kind of look at my child and I'd say, what did you call me? And at that moment, they'd kind of straighten up, get very repentant and say, Dad, Father, the most holy reverend Father. I mean, you know, they would would start to realize, whoa, I think I overstepped something here. And while, while God is high and holy, he's also not distant. So there's a balance where we come to him understanding this privilege that we have through our relationship with his son, Jesus Christ, that we've been adopted as sons and daughters. And we don't have to be standoffish like uh, the, the Jewish religious leader said, where you can't even speak his name. God says, come to me. But as you come, recognize who I am. And we, we get to come through the relationship. Now, to understand the importance of relationship here, I want you to imagine you're in a grocery store. And as you're walking down the aisle, uh, you know, this kid comes up, little kid you've never seen before in your life, and they start tugging on your pants, and you turn around, and you go, yes? And they say, hey, grown-up person, uh, get this for me. And, and what would you do? You kind of, where, where are your parents, kid? I mean, do you have mom or dad? I'm, why, why do I need to get this for you? I don't know you. I have no relationship. It's not that you're mean, but you're saying, I don't have a responsibility for you. I don't, I don't have this, this relationship. Now, change the scenario to have your son or daughter come up to you. And as they come up, they they hug your leg and they say, Mom, Dad, could you please get this for me, O benevolent Mom or Dad, right? You, You would be willing to consider the request because of your relationship with them. And as we come to God, it's based upon this relationship. There's a passage in Matthew chapter 15 that tells us what happens when a request is made and there's no relationship. 
In Matthew 15, 22 through 28, it says, And behold, a Canaanite woman came and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But Jesus did not answer her a word. And his disciples came to him, and they kept saying, Send her away, for she is shouting out after us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and she began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And and he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, your faith is great. Be it done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Now, as you read that initial exchange, it's kind of, you know, shocking, isn't it? This is Jesus. And she recognizes who he is. She addresses him with a title that says, I know you're the promised Messiah. You are the son of God. And what she's asking for would be within God's will, right? It's, it's combating Satan and his, his, his destructive work here on earth. It's, it's uh, asking for relief of an innocent child who's, who's struggling, who's suffering. And what Jesus says to her is, I don't have a relationship with you. At this point in time, as God's plan was unfolding, uh, the Messiah was, was to be given to the nation of Israel first. He says, you're outside of the covenant people. You're a Canaanite. The Gentiles have not yet uh, received the gospel. And, and, and he's, he's saying, I don't have a relationship with you. But she perseveres. She entreats him. She shows great faith in him. And because of that, he, he shows great mercy. And he, he grants her request. As we look back at our passage in Luke eleven five through 8, you see Jesus tells a parable here in conjunction with his teaching on prayer. Luke 5, uh, 11, 5 through 8 tells us, Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend. And he goes to him at midnight and he says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine who has come to me from a journey. And I have nothing to set before him. And from inside, he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. But I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now, as we're reading about this man knocking at the door, and as we're reading about this this Canaanite woman persevering, this isn't saying that we can nag God to death. And he's going to grant us our request just to make us go away. When you see the word persistence in your English translations, uh, some of you have a, a really big word there. You have the word importunity. Do you see that in some of your Bibles? The Greek word that is used here literally means uh, audacious impudence. And you're saying, I thought importunity was a big word. You've got audacious imprudence, impudence. Now, what does that mean? Well, If you want to write in the margin of your Bible, shameless, that's the cookies on the bottom shelf definition of the word, shameless. And and what it's telling us is that this man banging on the door was not ashamed to wake up his friend. Now, it's not that he has no social graces. It's not that he's saying, well, it's a friend of mine, he'll overlook it, he'll be mad for, till morning, and then he'll get over it. What, what is happening here is that this is tied in where this guy is saying, I would rather suffer shame personally 
than to see the, the, the requirement of the law and the glory of God, so to speak, be overridden by my unwillingness to, hum, to, to humble myself. You see, remember in the first century, there was something called the law of hospitality. In the Middle Eastern societies, even to this day, there is a law of hospitality that says even if you see a stranger in the street, you are required to take them into your home. You read about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and remember the the angels that had uh, human form were in the courtyard, and these people took them in. And as the city came against them, it says they would rather suffer loss than to push these, these people who are now under their roof out into the street. Uh, There's even uh, examples of it in our modern day. If you've ever read the book Lone Survivor, you know we had a a special forces person who was uh, the last survivor in in a firefight with the Taliban, and he went into a village, and he was taken in and given the protection of the community. And as the Taliban came against that village, they were willing to, to suffer the entire loss of the community than give up this stranger who was now under their protection. And so the law of hospitality said you have to bring in a person, and once you bring them in, they're not only under the protection of your roof and your family, but you are to provide for them. So this friend shows up at an unannounced. The guy has him in his house. He says, I have nothing to feed you, and it will bring shame to my family, to our community as a whole, if I don't do this. So he was willing to suffer shame personally Uh, to humble himself in order for the need to be met. And I give you that big explanation because how many times do we not go to God and humble ourselves in prayer? We try to do something ourselves, or we say, I'm not going to keep asking. And what God says is, this is what prayer is. It's a willingness to have that audacious impudence where we come before him. And it ties into even God and his glory here as well because it's God's reputation that is at stake. You see, the outside world watches. We sing songs like, you're a good, good father. We talk about how we trust in God and he takes care of us and our needs. And the world watches and they say, how is God as a father in meeting the needs of his children? Does he answer prayer? Does he take care of those who are his own? This is what's further unpacked in Luke chapter 11, verses 9 through 13. Jesus says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. He says, now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? There was a famous missionary uh, by the name of George Mueller. He was known as a prayer warrior. He recorded more than 50,000 answers to prayer. And Mueller says of prayer, it is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is laying hold of his willingness. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of his willingness. See, the scriptures tell us our heavenly father desires to give good gifts to his children. Now, that doesn't mean that God is one of those indulgent parents, right? Those parents who say, I'm going to give my kid anything they want. Because if you're a good parent, you know there are times the most loving thing you can do is say to your son or daughter, no, that's not good for you. 
I'm not going to give you candy right before dinner. No, I'm not going to give you every uh, game you want. No, I'm not going to let you stay out, you know, till 2 o'clock in the morning when you're 10 years old. No, that's not good for you, right? A loving parent will say no. Sometimes a parent will say no to the candy right before dinner because they say there's something better for you, a nutritious meal, and I want you to be able uh, to eat it. And because God is a loving father, there are times he, he says no. It's not that your prayer did not go answered. I have people ask me all the time, Roger, I've been praying this. Why hasn't God answered my prayer? And I say, well, he has. He said no, right? No is an answer. Sometimes God says no. And it's because he loves us. And sometimes God says no to what we're asking because he wants to give us something better. There's a guy by the name of Henry Bosch, and he had a friend who lives out in a rural area. And this guy's so far away from stores that he orders everything online, including his clothing. And so he was ordering clothing one day, and uh, at the bottom of the form, there's this line on this uh, order form that says, if we're out of stock in what you want, can we make a substitution? Now, in this particular order he was making, he thought, well, it's not really a big deal if it's a different color or something style different than what I'm asking for. So he wrote the word yes. Yes, you can make a substitution. Well, when the package arrived in the mail, he opened it up, and it, it wasn't what he had, he had ordered, the particular piece he had ordered. And with it, there was a note that came with his order. And, and it said, um, we're sorry that we did not have the article in stock which you ordered. We are sending you something better at our expense. And this item was actually twice the price of what he had paid for. And after that, this man said whenever he made an order, he always printed out in big words, yes, when they said, can we substitute something? Because he knew it would be better than what he had asked for. When you pray, do you say to God, make any substitution you want? Do you say, God, I trust you to answer this prayer in my best interest? God, I know that you have the, the blueprint and the, the master plan of, of all time in front of you, and I trust you, so feel free to make any substitution you want. When we make our requests made known to God, that's what we need to be praying. Now, it's not that God is ever going to be out of stock in terms of what we're asking for, but he may know something better than what we're praying for. Ephesians 3.20 tells us, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. We can't get high enough to understand just how much and how great God is and what he can do for us. You see, prayer is not, some people think of prayer, they, they, they close their Bible and they rub it like it's a genie lamp, right? And we say that magic phrase, in Jesus' name, and we think God's going to pop out and say, oh, Master, what is your wish? When we pray, what we're supposed to do is say, Master, what is your will? What do you want done? 1 John 5.14 tells us, And this is the confidence we, which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, the word if that is there is the Greek word aeon. And what that means in Greek grammar is it's called a third-class condition. And so here's the simple rule about a third-class condition. It means in order for B 
to be true or to occur, A has to first happen. Remember James 4? You do not have B because A, you did not ask. Uh, And as we see here uh, in in 1 John 5.14, it says, if we ask according to his will. It's saying sometimes we're asking things A, but it's not B according to his will. And so he says we have to, uh, it's why in Luke eleven two Jesus says, pray your kingdom come, not mine or yours. He says, dear God, your kingdom come. As Matthew 6, uh, 10 tells us, it says, your kingdom come along with the words, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what it's saying here is we have to ask according to his will. That's the A before the B can occur, meaning that what we're asking for has to be according to his will before God will hear the prayer in the affirmative. That means answering it. See, the purpose of prayer is not to get something for ourselves. Rather, it's to get something done for God. The purpose of prayer is not to get something for ourselves. It's to get something done for God. It's why James 4.3 says you do not have because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. We're asking for something for ourselves. Now, that doesn't mean, brothers and sisters, we never ask God for nice things. It doesn't mean that we, ask, we, we never ask God to do things for us. God is a loving Father. He does want us to enjoy life. Ecclesiastes tells us that our reward in life is to enjoy the fruit of our labors. And so it's not a matter that God is saying you can never ask for something for yourself. But it's with the understanding that we are merely managers or stewards of everything. And we go to God and say, we recognize you've given us these things to be used for your purposes, your glory. What happens is sometimes people will read a passage like John 14, verses 13 through 14. John 14, 13 says, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So this is where we get that that genie in the lamp, right? We think God's a cosmic bellhop. We, We say the magic phrase in Jesus' name, and poof, he appears and says, what is your wish? But when it says, if we ask anything in Jesus' name, what it's literally saying is, if we pray for something that Jesus himself would pray for, then we know God will answer it. Do you understand that? If we're asking for what Jesus himself would ask for, we know that will be answered. Okay, so uh, think of it this way. Have you ever gotten one of those checks that on the front it says uh, two signatures required? Anybody here ever gotten one of those checks? Right? And so if you think in terms of your prayer, we fill in the request. That's what we're requesting. And then we sign that first line. But the check is no good unless God co-signs the check. Do you understand that? Jesus has to agree to what it is we're asking. God's will has to be done in order for God to be obligated to cash the check. Now, again, it's not that we have to overcome the reluctance of God. God desires to answer prayers. Uh, George Law tells us prayer is a mighty instrument not for getting man's will done in heaven, but God's will done here on earth. It's not about getting God, uh, God's will. Prayer is a mighty instrument, not for getting man's will done in heaven, but God's will done here on earth. Let me explain it this way. There's a guy by the name of E. Stanley Jones, and, and he says, imagine you're in a boat, 
You're in a small kind of a rowboat, a John boat type of thing, and you're near the shore. And you have this uh, anchor or this boat hook type of thing on a rope. And he says if you throw that anchor to the shore and it, it hits the shore and you kind of dig it in, and he says, and you start pulling on the rope, he says, are you pulling the shore to the boat or are you pulling the boat to the shore? Which one would you say? You're pulling the boat to the shore. And so prayer is not about pulling God to what we want. It's about pulling us to what God wants. Is that how you pray? Are, are you praying, God, do what I want? Or are you saying, God, I want to do what you want? Now, if you're wondering, well, how do I know what God's will is? How, how, how do I know uh, how to pray according to God's will? Well, do you have one of these? If you don't have a Bible, please do not leave Wayside today without one. Go to our Welcome Center. We will give you one free as a gift. We want you to have God's Word. You can download it on your phone as well. But if you have the Bible, you will already know most of God's will for you because in the pages of Scripture, God has revealed for us most of His will in very specific terms. And in the times where it's not specifically spelled out, you can, apply, you can know God's will from the general principles that are found there. Now, what I sometimes find is that there are professing Christians who will come to me and they'll say, well, Roger, I was praying about this situation and, and God has given me a peace about it. So I know that it's okay that I do this. And I'll say, tell me again what it is you, you think God wants you to do. And they'll tell me and... and a number of the times I'll be able to say, I don't think that's at all what God wants you to do. Well, how do you know? Because he's given me peace. And I'll say, because in the pages of Scripture, he says very specifically that's not his will. Let me give you a couple examples. I, I have on a regular basis, people will say to me, well, I've, I've got this boyfriend or girlfriend, and I think they're really neat, and they describe all these great attributes, and they say, I think it's God's will that this is the person I marry. And I'll say, well, I haven't heard you talk about their relationship with the Lord yet. Do you know if they're a believer in Jesus Christ? Tell me about that. Oh, well, they're not yet a Christian, you know, kind of this missionary dating. I'm going to, you know, help them become one. Or, or they're saying, well, no, they're, they're not a believer, but, but I love them. And I know God has told me this is the right person for me. And I can open the Bible and say, it says right here, God says, do not be unequally yoked with a non-believer. It is not God's will for you to marry a non-Christian. I've had another person who said, you know, we've been dating for a long, long time, and, and I think it's time that we, we sleep together. And I'm where are you getting that? Well, you know, we need to make sure we're compatible. And on. I said, God designed men and women. You are compatible. You don't have to worry about that, right? <laughs> well, no, no, I think, I think, you know, God wants me to. And I'll say, well, it says right here in Hebrews, keep the marriage bed undefiled. No, that is not God's will. And I could keep going with examples like that. Friends, if I'm upsetting anybody here and I'm stepping on your toes, I'm sorry, I'm aiming for your heart. What I want you to understand very clearly is God will never contradict himself. And if his will is plainly revealed in the Bible, I don't care what counsel you've gotten from anybody, including people who call themselves pastors or reverends or ministers. There's a lot of bad Christian counseling going on out there where people say, God just wants you to be happy. If what you are hearing from somebody or what you have this peace about contradicts the revealed word of God, then reject it. Because God will never 
contradict himself. And he's given us the owner's manual. This is our guidebook for life. This tells us how to live our lives. It tells us how to have uh, a relationship and to receive the gift of eternal life through the, the death of Jesus on a cross. And if you want to pray according to God's will, start right here with the owner's manual. Now, the next part of the Lord's Prayer says, Give us each day our daily bread. Now, rarely does God drop a a, a lump sum on us. Wouldn't you like to receive the entire wages you would ever earn your entire life all at once? I mean, imagine being able to invest all of your earnings at once and then being able to watch that compound and grow and and live off the interest and, and things. But that's not how God often takes care of us. What he does is he meets our needs on a daily basis. As you think in terms of the first century, uh, Jesus was talking to Jews whose forefathers had to be fed literally every single day in the wilderness. Remember, they would wake up each morning and there would be manna. Their daily bread would be uh, provided from God there in the wilderness. They had to go out and collect it. As you read the Bible, you'll see over and over where Jesus gives instruction on not withholding the wages of a laborer or not keeping the cloak of somebody who is as, as a surety for a loan because people literally in that day lived hand to mouth and they were paid every day. And in our uh, day, in our society here in, in, in America, many, uh, there are very few people that are truly living hand to mouth. And so it becomes easy for us sometimes to forget what it means to have a daily dependence on God. Why do we pray, give us this day our daily bread? A question was asked by a Sunday school teacher one day of, of their, her young students. And, and one little boy raised his hand and he said, well, it stays fresher that way rather than getting stale. <laughs> if your relationship with God has grown stale, ask yourself if you're going to him every day. Do you talk to God every day in prayer? It's a relationship. Do you spend time in his word, reading it, listening to him? Saying, Daddy, what do you want to teach me today? God, what, what privilege uh, do you want to reveal to me today through, through your word? The mysteries, as we saw last week, that even the prophets and kings wanted to know are unfolded for us right there in the Bible. Now, if you're somebody here that's saying, well, I, I really don't have to depend on God every day, I want you to take a deep breath. Do that. What would happen if God... Quit providing air for you to breathe at this moment? How long would it be before you suddenly realize your dependence on him? As as your heart is beating, what if it were to suddenly stop on the next beat? Are you dependent upon God daily? Yes, we are. And we need to understand him and the gifts that he gives to us, just how truly dependent we are and how much he really loves us. Now, another hindrance to our walk with God is is when sin damages our relationship, which is why Jesus tells us as we go to God, there's to be confession in our prayer. It says, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So there's two parts to the prayer. One of those is our sin against God the relationship with God that is broken. And and when Jesus went to the cross and he died to pay the penalty of death for our sins, he said in John 19.30, paid in full, it is finished. He paid the, the, the penalty for sin once and for all. The account is closed. 
We don't lose our salvation once we come to faith. God has, has, has written our names in the book of life, and he says, you're mine forever. You can read Hebrews 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Read John 10, 28 and 29, how we've been placed in his nail-scarred hands, and, and Jesus closed it around, and God the Father closes his hand around us. But what we can do is damage our relationship with God. There can be sin that blocks our fellowship. And so what God does is he gives us a way to restore daily fellowship with him. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's another one of those conditional statements. If we confess, then God forgives us of our sins. And so confession needs to be a part of our prayers. And as we do, you don't have to bring up everything you've ever done in the past over and over and over. I love what Corey Ten Boom's father says about uh, God and our sins. He, he said, God takes our sins and he throws them in the deepest ocean and he puts up a no fishing sign. They're never to be brought up again. And as you think in terms of people who have wronged you, the second part of the prayer is we say, Father, forgive uh, us as we forgive others who have sinned against us. Do you really want to be forgiven by God the way we forgive other people? How many times do we go fishing in that hole and bring up over and over, oh, you remember when you did this? Do you remember when you, you know? Now, I'm not being flippant. I know it's hard when you've been hurt. I know when people wrong you, it's, it's a struggle to forgive them. And in those times, if we're struggling with, with extending the forgiveness we've received from God, go to God and say, Lord, I need your help with this. I need you to, to not only help me, but could you provide godly counselors or others who could come in and could help mediate or bring some healing to this broken relationship? God wants us to forgive those who have wronged us just as we have been forgiven by him. Now, if you're here this morning and you're saying, well, you know, Roger, I've never been forgiven by God because I've never come to him because I, I, I know I've made such a mess of my life that God would never have anything to do with me. I want you to read Romans 5.8 because Romans 5.8 tells us God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were at our worst, when we were in open rebellion, when we were far from God, what it says is God died for us. God's son went to the cross. He spread his arms wide and he gave his life to pay the penalty of death for you and me. God loves you just like you are this morning. Now he loves you too much to leave you like you are as well. So once we come to faith in him, we need to say, God, would you help me to begin to grow? Would you help me to begin to change in those areas, those, those areas of sin uh, where I'm not living as I should? And this, this is part of what the, the Lord's Prayer says. We, we pray, and Lord, lead us not into temptation. Matthew 6.13 says, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, this isn't saying you have to go and say, please, please, God, don't tempt me anymore. I can't, I can't handle those sins that you're throwing in front of me. The, the Bible is very clear. James 1.13 tells us, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. What we're praying for here is God's protection, for, for God's help in our own weaknesses. It's like when Jesus went to Peter and he said, Peter, Satan has requested to sift you like flour, but I've prayed for you. 
We go to God and we say, God, I need your help. You know, it's been said that you can't keep the birds of the air from flying over your head, but you can keep them from nesting in your hair, right? Temptations are going to come. You're going to be walking down the street and you're going to see something. You're going to see a billboard. You're going to hear somebody say something. And, and, and sometimes those, those temptations hit us. And in those moments, what we do is we say, God, I need your help. I'm weak here. And, and the Bible tells us that God is resident within us who are believers. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Lord and the Spirit of God dwells within you? We just read in Luke where people were asking for the Holy Spirit. Remember at the day of Pentecost, when the church was birthed, that's when the Holy Spirit was given to Christians. If you're a believer, you have God resident within you. And that's where God says, I want you to listen. Listen to that still, small voice as I'm trying to help you avoid bad situations. Have you ever been somewhere where you kind of get that feeling, that prompting? You can call it your conscience. You can call it whatever. And, and, and you, that, that, that's God telling you, you know. I talk to people who say, well, you know, Roger, I was, I was sitting in this, this room with the doors closed and in the dark up at 2 in the morning and I'm on the computer and I'm getting into an Internet area where there's, you know, stuff I shouldn't be looking at, pornography. And even at that moment as I'm there, I kind of, I'm looking around the room like, who's watching me? I'm saying, well, that's the Holy Spirit telling you, turn off the computer, get in bed, go to sleep, stop doing what you're doing. God doesn't want us playing with fire. If, if this sanctuary were suddenly on fire, how many of you would just sit here and say, I'm going to stay here and stand the heat. I'm going to go toe-to-toe with it. I'm going to overcome the heat. Or would you run out those doors that say exit? What would you do? Anybody going to hit the exits? I am. I'm going to tell you to. <laughs> I'm going to tell you this is not a drill. It's time to evacuate and leave. Well, First Corinthians ten thirteen tells us, and no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will provide the way of escape so that you can stand up under it. You see, what God says is, I have given you what you need to face the trials of life. I've given you my presence in your life in the form of the Holy Spirit. I've given you my guidebook called the Word of God. I've given you brothers and sisters to hold you accountable to come alongside you. The Scriptures tell us not to forsake gathering together as is the habit of some. He wants us to come together to fellowship, to strengthen, encourage, spur one another on to good works. And he says, when you find yourself in one of those situations where you're saying, I have no way to stand up against this, he says, flee. Flee temptation. Over and over in the scriptures, it says, young man, flee from immorality. It says, get out. Hit the exit doors. Run away from it. The Bible doesn't want us to go toe-to-toe with temptation. What God says is, go to God and say, Lord, would you help me? We are to pray. Uh, Deliver us from evil. But we're not to be constantly putting ourselves in situations and wondering, why did we fall? What happened? It's like the little boy who went to bed one day and, and, and you know, his mother was downstairs and she hears this big bang and her son screams out crying. She runs upstairs. She goes in his room, flicks on the light. The little boy's laying on the, the floor and she says, son, what happened? And he said, well, mom, I stayed too close to where I got in. He laid down in his bed and he rolled out because he stayed too close to the edge. 
Friends, don't live on the edge. Flee. Get out of it. Now, Matthew's gospel comes to an end by, in the Lord's Prayer by saying, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And as we come to a close today, we're coming to the communion table. And the communion table is both a place of praise as well as the answer to what God did with our sin, how he dealt with the sin in our life. Because as much as we may pray for God to deliver us from evil, as much as we may ask God uh, not to let us fall into sin, the reality is every one of us here has sinned. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of sin, it means that there is a separation, that we owe a penalty of death, and our fellowship with God has been broken. But at the communion table, we're reminded of what God did to restore the relationship, to deal with the problem of sin that you and I had. Because he sent his son Jesus. Jesus came and he died on the cross. Because Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We've talked today about God being a loving father. But he is also a holy God. And as a holy God, it says that there is justice that has to be accounted for. There has to be the penalty of sin dealt with. And the only way that God being holy and just as well as loving and merciful could come together was in the form of his son Jesus who came and took our place as he walked the earth and he ultimately went to the cross paying the penalty that you and I owed for our sins. That's what the communion table reminds us of, of who our God is, of his great, great love for us, of his mercy and grace. And so if you're here this morning and you've never received the Lord as your Savior, in a moment there's going to be elements that are passed, bread that represents the body of Jesus and a cup that represents the blood of Christ. And if you've never accepted him as your Savior, I want you to take the bread if you're ready to turn from your sins into Jesus as your Savior and say, Lord, I recognize this represents you, Jesus, the one who died for me. I accept your death in my place. As you take the cup, say to God, I know I owe a penalty of sin, but your blood washed it away. You made me white as snow. You saved me from my sin. And today, Jesus, I accept you as my Savior. For the rest of us who have done that in the past, this is a time for us to say thank you, God. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for taking my place. If there are any sins you haven't confessed recently and you need to, then take this time as the elements are passed to confess your sins to the Lord. This is an open table for all who are believers. You don't have to be a member of Wayside. So as the elements are passed, take the bread and the cup and hold them, please, and we'll take them together. In John 3.16, we're told, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The bread you hold in your hand demonstrates God's great love to us, that he died while we were sinners, showed how he paid the penalty of death that we owed. The bread of Jesus, drink it in, eat it in remembrance of him. And here we have a cup, a cup that is filled with grape juice, but what it represents is the precious blood of Jesus.
blood that was poured out, blood that was shed on the cross. And the reason that Jesus had to die on a cross, being given a body and having blood to shed is because the book of Hebrews says without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of sins. There were other sacrifices offered at the temple, bulls, goats, lambs, others that could not remove the stain of sin. But when Jesus came, as John one twenty nine tells us, John the Baptist looked at Christ and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so here we see and we remember and celebrate what Jesus did to wash away our sins. The blood of Jesus, drink it in remembrance of him. Join me as we pray. Lord God, we thank you for your son. We thank you for your word that tells us what he did for us. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege that we have to talk to you in prayer. That we can come to you, God the Father, our daddy, through the relationship we have with your son, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that we have the Holy Spirit who lives within us. We thank you in those times where we don't know how to pray that you tell us in your word that you, Holy Spirit, intercede for us with groanings too deep for our own understanding. So even when we don't know how to pray, we just have to call out to you, and you, Lord, will guide our prayers. Would you help us to be men and women, boys and girls, who walk with you, who talk with you, who spend time in relationship with you. Thank you for the privilege we have to be called sons and daughters of yours. We thank you for the gift of eternal life through Jesus. It's in his precious name we pray and thank you. Amen.